0: Welcome to How I Wrote This, a show about writers, their books, and the story behind their stories. I'm your host, Pamela Hensley, and in season two, I travel to Berlin. Learn what it's like growing up in a divided city, fleeing the country, living here as a Jewish expat. Join me as I speak to winners and contenders of the German Book Prize, the Thomas Mann Prize, the Dublin Literary Award, and the International Booker. Season two of How I Wrote This begins on April 23rd. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Are we starting with a clip today?
2: We're going to start with a story. When we last talked about Daphne Ojig, she was living in Perry Sound, a few hours from her home in Wemekong First Nation. And it was at this time that she began to use a different last name.
3: Ojig means fisher. In Ojibwa, um, the fisher, of course, is a small river animal. And uh, she began to introduce herself as uh, Daphne Fisher. This is
2: Bonnie Devine. My name is Bonnie Devine. I'm a visual artist. Daphne spent many years detached from her Ojibwe identity, signing her artwork with Fisher in place of Ojig.
3: Some of them are signed uh, Daphne Fisher, some of them are just signed Daphne. I've got a a couple of examples from the 60s where she just signs it Daphne and so kind of avoids the whole issue. Which I I think was, you know, pretty savvy of this young person, you know, really just trying to make a living and do the best she can to be accepted in mainstream Canadian society, really.
2: During the Second World War, Daphne moved to Toronto for work, but she continued to paint. In nineteen forty five, she married Paul Somerville, a veteran, and they moved to Fraser Valley, BC. The couple had a son, David, her husband would later die in a car accident. In 1962, Daphne got remarried to Chester Beaven and the couple moved to Manitoba. It was during this period that she began to reconnect with her First Nation identity. I
3: can tell you the roundabout story or the, the quick story. The quick story is that she was invited by her um, sister-in-law, uh, Rosemary Paltier, uh, to attend the um, Wikwemekong Powwow.
2: This was 1964.
3: She was married, she had she had a family, um, and she was painting and, and had, you know, made um, made a bit of a name for herself as a uh, painter in oils and acrylics. So um, the, the, she gets this invitation to go back to Iquemacong, and she accepted. Uh, she travels all the way to Ontario. It's quite arduous even in those days to get up to Iquemacong, uh, you know, anyway. Um, She's there and
2: um, it was the fourth annual powwow. It's important to remember that powwows had previously been banned, beginning in the 1850s. It was illegal for First Nations communities to practice dance ceremonies. This ban lasted for decades. Daphne's sister-in-law was also working to revive songs and dances in Wiki. This was a big deal because uh, there was considerable
3: opposition by the um, Jesuits who were still the sort of the, the spiritual bosses of the community, sort of in charge, had been in charge since 1630, you know, like it was a, they were They were entrenched there and they did not want this power to go forward. Daphne went and she's watching from the sidelines. And, and, and her sister said, come and dance. Come out onto the powwow ground and dance with us. And Daphne was quite reluctant to do this. Uh, for one thing, she'd lived away from um, an Indigenous community since she was 18. You know, she had worked very hard to acclimate and um, be accepted in uh, white communities and uh, white mainstream art art world and uh she felt I I, I imagine she never said this but I imagine she felt a bit like an imposter or, or a, an intruder there or a um a, a visitor you know a guest anyway they they convinced her to go and dance and she said she she began and she was watching what everyone's doing and trying to do it too and uh she said all of a sudden that drum, that sound of the drum just went into her heart. And uh, she said she knew she was an Indian. And from that time on, um, you know, with the uh, with the encouragement and the help of, of her um, sister-in-law, Rosemary, um, She began to explore some of the stories uh, from the elders on the island. Uh, She embarked on a number of projects with Rosemary um, uh, to tell those stories and illustrate them. She started to do a little bit of curatorial work, so um, put together an exhibition of works um, that were on display during the powwow and so on. Uh, And in that way began to realize that maybe there was a space for her uh, in that artistic genre, that offered her um, a chance to express that that new identity that she was born.
2: I'm Soleil Lunier,
0: and I'm Ryan Barnett,
2: and this is Among Equals a five-part look into the history and legacy of the professional Native Indian artist Inc. In our last episode, we met Alex Janvier, Jackson Beardy, and Carl Ray as they worked on the famed Indians of Canada Pavilion for the International and Universal Exposition in Montreal, otherwise known as Expo 67. This is Episode 3, Daphne's Place. Hold on, we have to do a little contextual play setting here. Okay. So, we've been to Expo 67. Greg Hill again.
1: That was a watershed moment for uh, Indigenous peoples, I think, in general. It was really the first time that Indians in Canada had uh, a a voice
2: uh, in, in, in an international forum. And Carmen Robertson.
1: It changed the way the world and Canada saw Indigenous people. In 67, it was a real important flash moment.
2: But... but.
1: However, it seemed like because there's a sense of cultural amnesia in Canada, much of that was forgotten.
2: So this brings us to this archival clip.
4: You might
2: have to interpret this for us.
0: So it's a clip of Pierre Trudeau or former prime minister. He's being interviewed and he's saying we must convince Canadians and particularly Indians that we need to make a choice. Either they become part of the mainstream of Canadian society and they're equal before the law with the same rights as other Canadians or they remain apart, a little different, not fully fledged citizens. So what's he talking about here?
2: So picture it. In October 1967, Expo packs up and everyone goes home. On June 25th, 1969, just a year and a half later, Jean Chrétien, who was the Minister of Indian Affairs at that time, introduced a statement of the Government of Canada on Indian policy, what's commonly known as the White Paper, on the floor of the House of Commons.
0: So what's the White Paper?
2: Well, it was the government's proposed solution to its perceived problem with the First Nations in Canada. In 1963, the federal government had commissioned a report on social conditions of First Nations people across the country. Anthropologist Harry B. Hawthorne, who was charged with conducting the survey, concluded that the First Nations were the country's most disadvantaged and marginalized populations. He called them citizens minus, as they experience higher rates of poverty and infant mortality, and lower rates of education and life expectancy. Hutton attributed these things to decades of failed government policies, which governed the lives of First Nations peoples. Right. It's a two-volume report, so just to summarize, it was Hutton's recommendation that the government bring an end to forced assimilation programs, like residential schools. But what the government took from his report, and subsequent consultations with various First Nation communities who expressed their concern regarding their treaty rights, education, health care, and self-determination, was that they needed to abolish the legal status of Indian.
0: Okay, so to remedy the problems either created by or exasperated by forced assimilation programs, the White Paper proposed more forced assimilation?
2: The white paper proposed to eliminate Indian status, dissolve Indian affairs, abolish the Indian Act, convert reserve land to private property, appoint a commissioner to address outstanding land claims, and gradually terminate existing treaties. Do you remember the original title for Alex Janvier's Expo 67 piece, The Unpredictable East? Yeah. Yeah, that's the white paper.
0: And this went
1: over?
2: Like a lead balloon. This happened amid a growing Indigenous civil rights movement in the late 1960s.
1: I mean, it's a very active period, uh, as you're noting.
2: This is Greg Hill again.
1: Coinciding with what was happening in, in the States as well, coming out of the civil rights movement.
2: In the United States, there was the American Indian Movement, which organized to combat police brutality, poverty, and discrimination in urban centers.
1: You can go back further to the idea of indigenous men volunteering for uh, the Second World War and going off and fighting in other countries, coming back as veterans and not uh, being given the same kinds of payments um, for their service. In some cases, some men coming back and actually losing their their homes or their land. These are people that uh, saw what it was like in other parts of the world, fought as allies for Canada and then come back and are treated, you know, very poorly, very differently from the people they fought alongside with. And that was a beginning of political mobilization in Canada.
2: By the time the white paper was introduced, the Red Power movement have moved north to Canada. One thing we want to underline for listeners is that the Indigenous activism during this period, related to decolonization and the rebuilding of Indigenous nations, also encompass revitalizing Indigenous cultures, worldviews and forms of expression. Indigenous artists were active participants in these efforts. Their works depicted themes related to individual and collective resistance to forced assimilation, colonization, and demonstrations of cultural pride. These works were not the handicrafts whose production the government so frequently encouraged.
1: For the senior Trudeau and jean Chrétien, it was about just society. And a way of solving the Indian problem by eliminating special status for quote unquote Indians. So basically we're gonna make you the same as us, legally, politically, within the constitution, so everything will be fine. But it's but it's not addressing any of the issues and the kind of multi-generational uh, problems that still exist today that come out of the cultural and physical extermination policies of the genocidal policies of, of the government for over a century. So you can't just say with a white paper that you're just like us, white, and, uh, and everything will be fine. No more Indian problem.
2: In 1970, Harold Cardinal and the Indian Association of Alberta issued a response, which they called Citizens Plus, also known as the Red Paper. It was a rebuke of the White Paper, stating that retaining the legal status of Indians is necessary if Indians are to be treated justly. Justice requires that the special history, rights, and circumstances of Indian people be recognized. In his book, The Unjust Society, which was published around this time, Cardinal elaborated, writing, In spite of all government attempts to convince Indians to accept the white paper, their efforts will fail, because Indians understand that the path outlined by the Department of Indian Affairs through its mouthpiece, the Honorable Mr. Chrétien, leads directly to cultural genocide. We will not walk this path. The government eventually withdrew this policy with Prime Minister Trudeau saying, "We had perhaps the prejudices of small l liberals and white men at that who thought that equality meant the same law for everybody."
0: And by small l liberals he means
2: someone who holds liberal views but not attached to a particular political party.
1: Right. You know, and it's still and it's amazing to see that this is still an idea that's perpetuated since then that that uh, Of course, the, there are negative things in the Indian Act, but you know, whether to, get, to eliminate it or, or not is still a question that's being debated.
2: Just as a button on this topic, Greg Hill told us a story about the time he gave Jean Chrétien and his wife Aline a tour of the National Gallery of Canada.
1: When we did more show at the gallery, they wanted a tour. Uh, So I gave them a private tour and I just I just could not resist asking him about the white paper because of course he had a a hand in it and It was a very jovial convivial, you know, tour And then as soon as I asked him that question uh, Aileen just walked away continued walking and and, uh, Mr. Christian stopped and his, his manner changed and everything and it just basically wasn't going to be a conversation
5: I was first hit by lightning when I was three years old in my grandmother's yard and it hit a tree it came across the ground it came up through my feet and it's the only time I've been hit three times and uh, it's the only time I was knocked unconscious that I know of Here is Joseph M. Sanchez. I am uh, Joseph M. Sanchez. I was born on the full moon in a place called Trinidad, Colorado, which is on the old Santa Fe Trail. On its way to Santa Fe, it's actually the mountain pass that comes onto the plains of New Mexico. Should we be hearing a ding?
2: Yes. Joseph was born in 1948. At 10 years old, his family moved out of Colorado
5: to the White Mountain Apache Reservation in Arizona. This place was a paradise in 1958, with lots of wild animals, beautiful streams full of fish, old growth ponderosa forest. Like the others in this story,
2: Joseph was a precocious and dedicated artist. His fifth grade teacher,
5: her name was Miss Guterres,
2: she would allow Joseph to skip phys-ed to instead stay in her class and make art.
5: And she taught me how to paint on glass this reverse painting on glass, which was really amazing for me, was my first idea of making art. And then she also taught me how to embroider, crochet, and started me on my path drawing all the time. That's when I really clicked into the idea that my destiny was to be an artist. And uh, so I was uh, in the sixth grade, it was easy for me to become the school artist because I already had this experience of working, learning how to paint, using paints, so I became a school artist, I made all the posters, I made all kinds of stuff for everybody. but I was constantly getting in trouble because I loved to draw nudes, and I would get sent to the office and punishment and get the uh, paddle, as they say. And uh, the punishment really strengthens my resolve as an artist.
2: After high school, Joseph joined the Marine Corps.
5: I joined the, the Marine Corps during my first semester of college. I did this after my art teacher. At the time, he threw away my whole semester's work that I completed actually in the first couple of weeks, his whole curriculum for the whole semester I did in the first couple of weeks. I must say I was rather enthusiastic. He said I was insulting him.
2: Joseph never went back to class. He ran into a recruiter on campus that, with the guarantee that he could have schooling as an artist, convinced Joseph to enlist.
5: Since my mother had just died, I kind of had a death wish as it was. A death wish?
2: Remember. Joseph was in the United States, and this was the late 60s, at the height of the war in Vietnam.
5: But it took three waivers for me to get to be a Marine. My eyesight was too bad. I only weighed 100 pounds, 110 pounds less, I think. And my height was only five foot.
2: But he got the waivers, and he was in.
5: Well, as a Marine, I was an angry Navajo and... uh, Uh, Angry Apache and I'm neither of those things.
2: Joseph spent 28 months in active service as a Marine
5: But as a stateside Marine, we were also in riot training for the uh, riots in Los Angeles and uh, During one of those training sessions, we would be asked to put our bayonet on the rifle and thrust forward chanting kill your mother. Yeah, I just I refused that order and That sent me into a, a real problem with the uh, hierarchy and uh, they actually put me in a uh, rubber room for a week saying i was crazy and i was on drugs but i had not even experienced anything like that so i i gave them artwork instead of answers to their questions after i left that then i started thinking about leaving the marine corps and coming to canada because i knew that was the place i could go is that what happened yeah that's exactly what happened
2: and as it happened Joseph moved to Canada just as something new was emerging in Winnipeg. More after this.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
2: In the years following Expo 67, recognition of this group of artists we're talking about grew. After a disagreement with the Centennial Commission and walking away from his work for the Indian of Canada Pavilion, Morisot was invited to exhibit in France. His exhibition, Peintre Indien du Grand Nord Canadien, held at Galerie Saint-Paul in Southern France, was a critical and public smash, receiving 12,000 visitors, including the likes of famed artists Pablo Picasso and Marc Chagall.
0: I read that Tom Hill, he's a Seneca artist and curator who also worked at Expo 67, he said that Canadians didn't give First Nations artists serious an examination as it received abroad. First Nations' works weren't hanging in, say, the Art Gallery of Ontario or the National Gallery at this time.
2: Yeah, that's correct. But around this time, Carl Ray, the artist who finished Morisot's mural, exhibited his work in Winnipeg, while Alex Lampier's work could be seen in Calgary. In fact, Norval Morisot and Jackson Beardy both received Centennial Medals. And each individual was either receiving commissions or Arts Council grants. While Morisot, Ray, Janvier, and to some extent Beardy were occupied with Expo 67, Daphne Ojig also experienced a growing profile and interest in her work. She had her first solo exhibition at the Lakehead Art Center in Thunder Bay, and a second the following year at Brandon University in Manitoba. And of course, because these artists were operating in similar circles, they began entering each other's orbits, Daphne met Carl in 1968 and Morisot the following year, and that pulled her closer to the Expo 67 cohort. And they began appearing in group exhibitions together in various configurations.
0: So things are finally coming together.
2: Yes and as they began to encounter one another in this period, Winnipeg had a unique gravitational pull for them all. Daphne had moved to Manitoba with her husband Chester in 1964, inching closer and closer to Winnipeg with each work reassignment for Chester, eventually settling there in 1970. Beardy and Ray had met in 1965 while hitchhiking across northern Manitoba both men would have exhibitions in Winnipeg in the near future and settle there themselves. The city's art scene also regularly draws Morisot and Genevier back. 1970 was also Manitoba's centennial, which like Expo 67, resulted in opportunities for these artists. Morisot, Beardy, Ray, and Ojig's work were all included in the portfolio of prints released by the Winnipeg Centennial Corporation. And then Daphne made an important decision. This is Bunny Devine again.
3: She was a fan of Andy Warhol, and she knew that Andy Warhol had opened something called a Factory in New York City on Manhattan. And she thought, well, why can't we have a factory? You know, and so um, she wanted to open up a place where people could come and, you know, they wanted to play music, fine. You wanted to make movies, fine. You wanted to paint? fine. You just want to hang around, you know, and uh, party, fine. So in
2: 1971, Chester and Daphne opened the small craft store out of which she ran OJ Prince of Canada Limited, a new business where she would sell her own work as well as that of her contemporaries.
3: You know, she had cottoned on to this idea that collectives can be extremely powerful in terms of um, seeding ideas and you know, disseminating uh, thoughts and building new practices. And I think that's what's, what, where she was coming from with that gallery.
0: My name is Michelle Bali and I'm a mother uh, and an arts administrator. I'm Nishinaabe Kwe, Ojibwe, and my family's
2: from Cape Croker and Seated First Nation, just south of Manitoulin Island. For Daphne, she was. Was, was really taking control um, you know, did not feel supported at the time. Um,
0: so really took it upon herself to create a space and a venue for artists to gather and for, for artists to, to be able to share their experiences and, and celebrate
5: differences and the ways they wanted to produce art. If you walked into the shop in those days, it was, it was small. In the, in the beginning days, uh, had a couple of, uh, of uh, counters, you know, glass uh, cases. That she had a lot of moxins and mucklucks and beadwork. And on the walls were her paintings and then paintings, uh, these prints she had already started to make of uh, of Norval and uh, Carl Ray. This is
2: Joseph again.
5: Well, when I first saw Daphne, she was just uh, an amazingly beautiful looking woman. Uh, she had these she liked to wear turtlenecks and she had a lot of turquoise jewelry and always wore a turquoise necklace. And She was just uh, such a warm person, you know, like so welcoming to everyone. She was looking for people who were willing to talk about some sort of authenticity, some realness in their own self, talk about their own people. Maybe it's ceremony, maybe it's just even a portrait. And I think that's why she liked my work. I was, you know, I had no ceremony. I had none of that going for me. But what I did have was I, I was just drawing directly from my experiences of, of, uh, of life. And she encouraged that. Also
2: in 1971, O.J. Prince put out a catalog advertising the works they had for sale. Prints by Daphne, Norval, Jackson, and Carl all appear in its pages, as well as a handful of other artists. What was that? I'm about to drop a name, I was a little quick on the button. So Winnipeg in 1971 is this hive of creativity.
0: Like Paris in the 1920s.
2: A little bit. And another artist who was there and orbiting Daphne's place was Eddie Cobines, an Ojibwe artist. Eddie was born in War Road, Minnesota in 1933. His family would split their time between the Red Lake Reservation in Minnesota and the Buffalo Point Reserve in Manitoba. Eddie's paternal grandfather was a great medicine man whose spiritual wisdom helped guide Eddie through life and his artistic practice. His father died when Eddie was just six years old.
3: Hmm.
2: After his father died, Rose Cobines, his mother, supported the family by working at the fisheries in the summer and in a hotel in the winter. Eddie, like the other artists in our story, discovered his artistic abilities at an early age. Eddie would say, Over the winter months, I would draw on the snow and in the summer on the sandy beaches along the lake shore. From time to time, my mother would look at my drawing and say, My son, you have a great gift and someday you will be a great artist. He sold his first drawing at 12. He took that bit of money and bought himself a pen and ink set and some unlined paper. Around that time, he also received his first oil paints. When Eddie was 21, he joined the US Army, where he spent the next three years. During his time in the army, he discovered watercolors and would practice by drawing portraits of the other soldiers' girlfriends from photos they had. As his mastery as an artist grew, he would alternate between media and styles.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at his work right now and there there are acrylic kind of pastoral images with loons and ducks on a pond. And then there are these other ones, these delicate ink and watercolor pieces of wildlife with glowing joints and resonant eyes. They're um, They're really quite beautiful.
2: Yes, much of his work was by his dreams, bringing them into reality.
5: It was from him that I learned incredible watercolor technique and how to do multiple works at once, which is the way I work today. And uh, that I learned from Eddie Kobanitz.
2: Eddie also signed his work with his 3D band number 47. What's often written about Eddie is who owned works of his. Ed Schreyer, who was the premier of Manitoba at that time, eventually he would be governor-general, he had a Kobinus. Jean Chrétien, Minister of Indian Affairs, and eventual Prime Minister of Canada, he had a Kobinus. And Queen Elizabeth II also had a Kobinus in her collection.
0: Well, that's interesting.
2: What's really interesting is how the Queen received his art. It was gifted to her while she was touring Manitoba for its centenary. She was in the pa and was officially welcomed by Grand Chief David Corshane of the Manitoba Indian Brotherhood. This was another group that formed in the late 60s, going back to the beginning of this episode. They had organized to advocate for First Nations living in Manitoba. So, this is a year after the White Paper, and less than three years after the Indians of Canada Pavilion had Expo. And you remember the queen's reported reception to that.
0: I remember that she was reported to be ashen when leaving the exhibit.
2: Yes, so Grand Chief David Courshane welcomes Queen Elizabeth II to the Pa.
4: Gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome your majesty to the ancestral homeland of the Indian people. It has been almost a hundred years since our forefathers signed treaties with Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Treaties which our forefathers have held in high esteem. It is with sorrow that we note that the promises of peace and harmony, of social advancement and equality of opportunity have not been realized by our people. I am sure you will note on your visits to Indian communities, that Indians have not in effect profited well by the prosperity of this great and wealthy nation. We are hopeful that your majesty's representatives will now through belated recognize the inequities of the past and will take steps to redress the treatment of the Indian people of Manitoba.
2: This is 1970. This is 1970.
0: Wow, I can only imagine her reaction.
2: As I said at the beginning, a social movement was swelling. On our next episode.
5: It was really a, a scene. There were so many people and they brought us in like a, a limo or whatever and we were all got out and people are clapping and you know girls are hugging us and that was really a rock star moment for me.
2: Among Equals is a special presentation of Knockabout Media and has been made possible by the Government of Canada. It's hosted by me, Soleil Lounière, and produced by Ryan Barnett, Maya Foster-Sanchez, and Naka Bertrand. Our series advisors are Joseph M. Sanchez and Donna Filadichok. This series features interviews with Bonnie Devine, Greg A. Hill, Michelle Lavallee, Carmen Robertson, Pauline Beardy, Philip Gavick, Corey Dingle, Donna Fledichuk, and Joseph M. Sanchez. Special thanks to Eric Berent at the Indigenous Arts Centre. Our series artwork is by Caleb Ellison Dysart, with additional work by Carlene Harvey. For a list of sources used in this series and to download the listening guide, visit knockaboutmedia.com.